Welcome to TSG Talk. TSG Talk aims to contribute positively towards the care of an injured casualty or vulnerable patient. If your goal is to maximise your input for the people you care for, then TSG Talk is for you. Our podcast will interview colleagues who are at the cutting edge of their professions. Often they're involved in creating solutions for areas that historically have proven difficult or have a wealth of experience in a particular complex response. Each podcast will provide unique, engaging content. At TSG Associates, we will always strive to ensure our solutions are ahead of the curve and positively impact on the quest for prioritising survival and minimising suffering. We believe TSG Talk will complement our vision and provide a platform to enhance your response. It is my pleasure to now pass you across to our host, Senior Partner at TSG, Colin Smart. Good evening, everyone and welcome to the latest edition of TSG Talk, Paediatric Triage in Multiple Casualties. Effective triage in multiple casualty events is a cornerstone to successful response, but often noted as one of the most difficult roles to perform. Paediatric involvement can add an additional stress and complexity to this response. To help us talk through this subject, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Ian McConaughey. Dr. McConaughey has a wealth of experience in this unique area, and I'm looking forward to discussing the subject with them. So welcome, Ian, and thank you for taking the time with us this this, uh, this evening to, to chat through this very interesting sub- subject. How are you doing today? Very good, thank you. Thank good. You. It's fantastic to see you. So, Ian, just... Um, just before we go into the subject, can, can you just give our listeners a little bit of um, your own background and experience, and then maybe after your, your general experience in paediatrics, talk a little bit about where you've been involved in, in paediatric triage? Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Kyle. So my name is Ian McConaughey. I'm a consultant in paediatric emergency medicine at St. Mary's Hospital, which is part of the Imperial College Group, and I hold an honorary chair there in paediatric emergency medicine. Going back, my research interests um, have been relating to vital signs and the development of vital signs and what's really normal and what's not normal. And from that, um, helped devise with uh, Brigadier Tim Hodgetts now, who was, he was not quite a brigadier when we did it because it was a while back, um, but about how you can use vital signs to triage children in a mass casualty setting. Certainly what had been found before was that um, many children were either over-triaged or under-triaged, but maybe we'll come to that. So other things I've, I've done, I'm currently Honorary um, Secretary for the Resuscitation Council, and I've worked with Trauma Care, which I think many people may know, which links up pre-hospital care right the way through to rehabilitation. It's a voluntary organisation. And I've just had an interest in seeing how you can perform triage in hospital, and actually, to be frank, much more with greater difficulty out of hospital, particularly in, in a sort of mass, mass casualty event. And uh, where I work, St. Mary's, we've had a number of rail crashes, the Paddington rail crash, Southall rail crash, and more recently, uh, the Westminster shootings, for example, um, stabbings, I should say, and more recently, the Grenville Tower, for which I was the triage officer receiving on the ramp and maybe we can open that up a bit later on because that was a mixture of adults and children so that's sort of my background really um, in terms of looking at triage being one of my major interests 
Well, that's fantastic, Ian. And I think what's um, really interesting on that is, is obviously you've got an incredibly deep academic background looking at the research on it, but you've also got a lot of hands-on practical experience. So you, you have been at what I call the pointy end of these incidents and experienced all the stresses and emotions and, and the coping strategies you need to go through them. So it will be wonderful to to talk with you about about how, how we approach this. It's what often can be seen as an incredibly complex event, but get get some of your, your thinking about how we can improve our response in this area. So so just before we, we look at the, the multiple casualty area, um, what we often find is many of our listeners, the pediat the general pediatric case can often cause significant anxiety. Are there any general pointers you could give to a, a first responder when they're approaching maybe one seriously ill or injured child to, to really generally help them their approach to, you know, to the, to the single patient at the moment? Yes. I think what's really important, I have something called my fixed dilated face, which is sort of like a, almost like a rictus smile. And it's not necessarily, it's not quite as bad as that, but it's, all, but it's sort of like a smile and a calm type of approach, even though behind that sort of facade, you may be thinking, oh my goodness, what is going on? Because what's really important is to try and engender calm in these sort of situations, knowing that you're going to try and do the best that you can for this situation. So, and sometimes it is extremely difficult, certainly in the pre-hospital setting, finding out how many casualties there are, who they are, what age groups they are, trying to assess them, and work out what the priority of need is. With a single patient, there aren't necessarily all those pressures, but there is also for some people that emotive element that they're not an adult and therefore may be relatively unfamiliar. The first responder may be not within their comfort zone, as it were. But the basic principles still apply in terms of ABC, obviously with um, C, uh, catastrophic hemorrhage being first, thinking about whether or not there needs to be C-spine protection. So what you're taught and that sort of drill is really important to be comforted by in terms of dealing with the patient. The other thing is, as you go to the child, and it doesn't matter if they're pre-verbal or not, simply talking, making reassuring noises is also really important. Some people worry that the child may scream or be hysterical or unconscious or whatever, but in some respects, if you conduct yourself so as thinking, I need to assess the child, I need to talk to the child, I need to see how they are using your schema, then I think that should give you a degree of confidence. You see, the opposite age range for me would be scary to see in an RTA, um, but I would try and apply those paediatric principles to the nonagerian or op- octogenarian. Now that, that, that's really interesting, Ian, because... Um... Well, in the series of podcasts we've been doing, um, we, one of the podcasts was talking to a colleague who had a seriously injured injury from a, a horse fault and broke his pelvis. And we've been talking to another colleague from the ambulance service who's dealt with multiple major incidents. And both of them brought out a major part of the response to the patient, either from the patient's point of view or the carer's point of view, was that human calm touch, which was so important. So it's really interesting you brought out the first thing was be calm, be confident in front of the patient, even though 100 things could, could be going on in your head. It's that exterior of that, I'm with you, I'm going to care for you, you're safe with me. And that's, that's fascinating to hear that again and again coming out and everybody we're interviewing on, on TSG Talk. So I think that just emphasises how, how important that is. 
So given the, the, the research that you, you've carried out on pediatric triage, could you just give us an idea of, of how often we we found that pediatrics are actually involved in multiple casualties. Is it something that's incredibly rare or was it something you found actually happened quite often? No, it's not. It's, it's not as rare. Specific pediatric ones by themselves are relatively uncommon compared to mixed age casualties. So, for example, I mean, going back, one of our tennis heroes, uh, Andy Murray, as you know, was born in Dunblane. And I think the aftermath of the 13th of March in 1996 was hugely significant for that community. And the reason why I focus on that, because some people may not be aware of the events at that time, but on that day, um, 16 children were shot dead and one teacher with 15 being injured. And this called into question uh, gun law and so on. And then the parallel, for example, in the States, the first sort of school uh, mass killing was Columbine in um, three years later in April, when there were t- 12 students who were, who were shot dead by two fellow students. They also wanted to, to, to bomb. So those are quite notable in terms of being much more specifically children-only events. There are, of course, coach crashes and so on, which are notable carrying children. More commonly, there's a mix. So, for example, the the Manchester bombing, which was one of the big ones, really, for the UK recently. There were some 160 people injured, 40 of whom were children. Unfortunately, only six of the children had to go to ICU. So the scale does vary. There's a there's also a lot of incidents that aren't reported that we don't hear about. I'm just sort of thinking on a huge scale, for example, the tsunami events and 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 also within the military settings. So sort of thinking about, for example, the the use of illegal gases upon populations, as we saw in Syria, which did kill adults and children, but the absolute numbers there aren't quite sure. But on the whole, they tend to be mixed, uh, involving people of different ages. And I think that's part of the challenge in some respects, paradoxically, is trying to sort out who's got the greatest need within that very diverse age grouping. In some respects, if you have if you have teenagers of a similar age, then you can have a better idea about the extent of their injuries and how to prioritise them compared to a whole range of different ages, as there may be comorbidity in, in um, older people, which is significant, compared to young children who may otherwise be well. But again, the well, the young well, I should say, can also, as we know, hide as it were, the extent of their injuries by their physiological signs to a later stage. And I think this is where the, the, the real difficulty is in terms of triaging on a physiological basis, um, who's got the greatest need. And as we all know, this isn't a static thing, it's a dynamic thing. So when we had the, the Edgware bombs, for example, which were just down the road by Marks and Spencers by the underground, there were quite a large number of people who were affected, but the walking threes were allocated to the London Hilton Hotel, where there was a consultant who was looking after them. And some of those, these were adults, because of the timing of the bombs, even some of those sort of P3s did deteriorate. So therefore, it's important to keep a really close eye on the classic walking wounded, much as it is for the P1s and P2s. So that, that's really interesting, Ian. I think what I'm getting from your reply is that children, there's a high chance of finding children in a multiple casualty incidents 
sometimes they're on their own, but often you've got this mix of adults and, and children put together. So the probability of some point in, in your career is probably quite high. And, and I think the other thing I picked up from what you were saying there as well, if you take it away from our domestic UK setting, if you go to worldwide disasters, especially war zones, natural disasters, then you're going to get the whole mix of the population involved. And obviously a significant part of that population is going to be pediatric. So I think, you know, if we're looking at multiple casualties, having a solution to triage is, is going to be hugely important or having a, a, an approach that we're comfortable with is, is something we, we have to get into our plans. So so that that's, that's fascinating. The other thing I picked up was the, the compensation of children, because obviously we know they compensate quite well and crash quite quickly as well. So I think that's something that's probably worth building into any strategy when you prioritise kids is to keep have some sort of observation on those, these children in case they add maybe shows P3 first and then com- and decompensate quite quickly. So I think that's quite a specific dynamic to kids we, we probably have to think about building in. I agree. So one of the it's interesting again because one of the recommendations that the Manchester bombing, which I think really was handled well on the whole, there are some criticisms. But but one of the key elements that came up, and this will be interesting for people to think about, is about managing injured children and the parents together on the same ward, which again could be quite difficult in terms of how we set about. Uh, our response to services and they also found that patient identification is difficult and they thought paediatric casualties were the most difficult at the time when there was separation of children from their parents or adults accompanying them. So these are really quite practical but difficult problems uh, for us to think about in the sort of the heat of the moment. There's a nice and just signposting people, there's a very nice piece of work. This was from Surge Testing in New York. The paper itself is called Lessons Learned from Paediatric Disaster Plan, Communication Surge and Secondary Transport Exercise. And this was 28 hospitals and city agencies. So there is information out there to think about how to get your plan together, always knowing that whatever plan you do put together, you're always going to have to adapt. You're always going to have to flex no plan can ever cover all contingencies and that's where the communication is really really important um so for example in granville there was good communication from the front scene to the hospital and that sort of helped with coping of the sudden influx of workload one of the things that was interesting was that it took a long time for that event to stand down so i started at 3 a.m and um didn't finish till almost 12 hours later because not so much of injured patients but because firefighters were there still there and so it couldn't be stood down and interesting at the same time of course other patients would come other patients with chest pain other patients with neck injuries which was not related to Grenville but it was functioning also as a department there was diversion going on but of course, the patients didn't know, and they still came to the same hospital for their ailments. Mm-hmm. There's something there about how you deal with those, and those who uh, came, for example, in cars were triaged according to the major incident plan because we hadn't stood down. And that, for me, was quite a lesson as to those patients who are not part of the major incident but who might be completely independent you may have to adapt your triage for those separately as for business as usual. And that's difficult when um, you're being pulled, I should say, to the limit by the number of patients coming 
from the incident. The other thing um, is to say there were quite a number of people who developed wheeze who lived within the proximity of Granville who had asthma, but they weren't direct involved in the fire, but obviously the toxic fumes and so on did did cause them uh, to have a wheezy episode. So there's the direct, the indirect, and then, as it were, the routine business end of managing patients who are coming to the ED. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. One of the areas I picked up on in one of your replies was um, trying to keep the adult with the child. And um, I'm just going back to a a bit of reading I did around the subject um, probably a few years back, but it was a particular paper I was reading that was saying is basically if the child has separation from the the primary carer, then there's a higher risk of longer-term psychological problems because obviously a, ch- a lot of the child security is linked to to that that the the, the, the closest adult to them so given the that medically they may have to have to go to different streams of definitive care yes. is it something we should look at with children that they always have some sort of accompanying adult with them that can at least give them that psychological support do you think that's a, a unique thing we have to do with the children well uh, <laughs> i would say probably it's for any any age group person mm. frankly because yeah. Certainly when I'm unwell, I regress um, to quite a, a youthful age. What's, again, it depends what you mean by psychological distress. So, for example, children on the age, under the age of five, it has been said, are less likely to suffer from PTSD. But that's that definition of PTSD. It may not necessarily mean that they don't have separation anxiety or other problems. So um, it's... I really think this is would be a good topic to uh, approach uh, a clinical psychologist, for example, like David Alexander or someone who's... Yeah, I know David. Within, yeah. ...within those sort of areas to talk about exactly this, the psychological disruption that there is uh, for the individual and for the family. Um, and then, as you say, at the same time, also for members of staff who've, who've been involved in this, because it can be quite um, harrowing. And again, David can give you good guidance as to different ways uh, of psychological support, not endless debriefing um, mm-hmm. that can be invasive or intrusive, but that is adaptive and fitted to those people's needs. Some people, as, as David said, simply need to go down the pub and have a pint with their mate, and that's it. And other people need different type of counselling, different type of support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, fascinating stuff, and it's just trying to understand maybe are there some unique differences or as you say as we're all injured it's always nice to have somebody close to you as well so it's maybe that's something that more humane touch is something we we should build into our responses so it's and um i think talking to um uh, david alexander would be a a very good you know very good idea to 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 explore this area further just so when when we're looking at adults and pediatrics and triage is is there and we've explored some of the differences already, but is there any distinct differences if you had to do primary triage on an adult and you had to do primary triage on the child? What what would you just, you say are the the big distinctions when we when we approach them? So at the very outset, you've got the physiological differences. So uh, when, when you're born, just to take you back, your heart rate was about 140, 160. You were breathing about 40 breaths a minute your respiratory rate was probably up, as I said, up about 40. Um, and that changes over time. That does change over time. Your blood pressure uh, also changes over time as well. 
The other bit is that our anatomy changes. So, for example, an infant will have a liver edge. That's to say the liver goes beneath the costal chondral margin and so isn't directly protected by the rib cage. The ribs themselves are cartilaginous. They're quite pliable. Um, if any of them are fractured, it means there's been a lot of energy transmitted through. Because all the time we're thinking about how energy can cause injury within the body. There are lots of other differences. So, for example, as you know about growth plates, and if you get a significant fracture through a growth plate, you may get asymmetrical limb or length development if it's one of the long bones. Uh, similarly, with um, spine can be affected if, if the spine's uh, in any way injured. Um, the head, relatively speaking, in a, in a two-year-old, is almost like a bowling ball on top of a, of a small body. So hence, there may be a greater aspect of, of head injury. And indeed, head injury by itself and head injury associated in association with other injuries, such as thorax and abdominal injuries, is, is a, they are sort of scenarios associated with increased risk of mortality. And there's nice TARN data that's looked at that as well, which probably needs a bit of repetition too. Um, so yes, so there's physiological change and the capacity. If you think that a one-year-old, on average a one-year-old weighs uh, 10 kilos, the circulating volume will be about of blood will be about 800 mils, so it's just over three cans of coke. So it's not much, relatively speaking, in terms of circulating vol volume for hemorrhage, because um, 800 mils isn't very much compared to seven times that at least for uh, an adult. So the, the sort of parameters and the responses can be quite quick, but they can also decompensate relatively fast too. But this is, this is a graduation, obviously, a graduation. Um, and I, I don't know much about adults, but I think there is, again, other end of life, I think there may be difficulty with compensation mechanisms. So it's, it's a complete spectrum, really, as from birth to uh, end of life, hopefully at an old age. Hmm, fascinating. So g given that the, the, there's definitely differences between the, 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 the paediatric in, in triage and the adult in triage um, and, and we know it can evoke quite quite a, a complex event to, to respond to. If if you were to give sort of maybe two or three pointers that our listeners could take away to to help them improve any future care they could give in a multiple casualty scenario, is, is there anything given your experience and, and the research to say, just, just think about this, this and this, if you ever have to deal with which I think for anybody is going to be a difficult scenario. Is there anything you could you could give them just as takeaways for them to think about and, and maybe put into their into their future care? Sure. So as I say, I think I think as you mentioned from others as well, <coughs> a calm appearing to be measured approach is really important. And that's as I say, talking to anyone of any age, and it doesn't really matter if they understand English or not, if they're pre-verbal or not. It's simply um, a, a lot of our communication is non-verbal anyway. So reassuring, talking, as you're doing your assessment, as I say, basics, C for catastrophic hemorrhage, ABC, obviously with C-spine, is really important. Thinking about what triage tools you're going to use, and there are triage tools that, um, that are available. I'll just interrupt myself there to say that the triage tools have often been assessed on um, individual patients 
rather than in the context of mass casualty. Um, what I mean by that, for example, the TARN data will give you uh, different levels of syringe from different sites, and you can take individuals to work through uh, triage tools. What actually needs to be done is to see how the triage tools work within a mass casualty setting, because it's not about an individual patient, it's about sorting out the whole of the scene. So that, that more research needs to be done in there. And finally, I think, is to recognise that any plan that you have, you've got to be flexible, adaptable, and know that you and the system is doing the best that they can for those patients of all ages. No, I think those are very, very good takeaways. Uh, and I think going back to the, the first one you said, which is something I'm hearing again and again, is that that calm persona of putting, getting the patient to have faith in you and saying you will be fine seems to be coming up again and again, either from a patient's point of view or the carer's point of view. Uh, it seems to be such an important part of the, the sort of spectrum of skill that, that we, we, we bring to, the, to these events. Well, what do you think is the... Just to finish on the final question, what, what do you think is the future of the research? You, you touched on a little bit of the research, and obviously we, we did a, the research on the original paediatric triage tape. I, I think we were saying about 20 years ago now. Um, I mean, what do you think is the, the future of research and developing new tools for this? Have you got any thoughts on, on where, where we now take this? Yes, I think some of the work that we did before looked at physiology, looked at a relative anatomy, as I said, it changes over time. Hence the paediatric tape that, that we did look, as they looked at four different categories. So physiology and anatomy. And then I think a lot more about, if you have it, the mechanisms of injury. And often they're combined, as you know, with bomb blasts, for example, you'll have the impact of the bomb, but then you may also have secondary um, debris, for example, causing injury and so on. And that's a very different scenario from a shooting. So in some respects, I think we've got to, think even more about how the energy uh, however that en energy is given to that patient transforms into injury um, that sounds very simple I don't know that it is mm. there's certainly new papers um, that are coming out using VR for example and, and um, testing out how clinicians against residents this is American against non-clinicians work and in some respects, the, there's a degree of sort of um, sophistication that's needed to work, certainly in the pre-hospital environment. What do I mean by that? The objectives of triage is to do the best for the most. And sometimes I think that's quite a hard concept for, for example, hospital doctors who are very used to doing the utmost for individual patients. So I think there's got to be a, a, also some work looking at how best psychologically to deal with these sort of situations, how you can, as I say, have simulation, although it's not perfect, but to see about how people's responses are. And by that means then potentially help those individuals actually conduct yeah. duties in the field. Um, I think one of the great things about pre-hospital medicine, it's completely recognised now to be a specialty rather than, you know, 30 years ago when, just thinking about the Clapham Rail disaster, yeah. you know, when St George's poured its entire contents virtually down the train embankment uh, with people flapping around in white coats. 
I think we've come a long way from there, but I think we can be even more sophisticated. No, that, that I think that that's that's a fantastic answer, and 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 I think what, what I'm picking up here there there is a lot of good work we've done. We we've got definitely some tools and some pointers on on how to approach this in in a very competent way at the moment. But it's a subject I think there's still work to be done on, and and, and there's a lot of refining to be done as well which I'm sure we will talk about feel at some point soon as well. And, and, and I very much look forward to that. But it's, 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 it is an absolutely fascinating area. Any other areas you would like to just bring out before, before we conclude tonight? I certainly think for ED training, um, it would be extremely useful to have, for people generally speaking, to have a much better understanding about the pre-hospital environment. As you know, there are people, um, there, are, there are clinicians from secondary care now who are working hand in glove with ambulance services in the pre-hospital setting. But I almost feel it should be part of, of um, everyone's training, as it were, all hospital doctors' training, mm-hmm. to have insight into um, how, how variable the pre-hospital environment can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I suppose that just drives the appreciation of the, the stresses and strains and limitations that we're, we're often faced in the pre-hospital and, and what we can deliver we can actually deliver to the hospital environment. I think that that would make make a lot of sense. No, that that's fantastic, Ian. Again, it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you about this this very specific subject, and 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 not not just get your academic slant on it, but obviously talk about your real life experience on it as well. So, thank you so much for for your time tonight this evening. If you would like to, any of our listeners would like to ask any questions on this, um, when the, the podcast is posted, we'll, we'll put a link, on, a link on our LinkedIn page and we'll also have links on our website as well. So uh, please, please post any questions, any of these, and we can get back to you with, with, with the appropriate answers. So once again, everybody, thank you for listening. Um, we will be back soon with another unique subject and, and colleague uh, in the emergency care area, and we'll look forward to talking soon. Ian, once again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of TSG Talk. We hope you found the content of benefit. Should you have any questions or require additional information, please visit tsgassociates.co.uk.